Well, if you please rise for the reading of God's Word as we have this special opportunity this night to hear from the Lord, and we do so from 1 Timothy in chapter 4, beginning in verse 11. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. The introduction to a recent pastoral theology book read this way, with these simple yet profound words, pastors serve as ambassadors of Christ. No doubt there has been many books written on the subject both that are helpful and good and needed. But when it comes down to it, an ambassador of Christ summarizes the pastoral duties quite well. In fact, the Apostle Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that in Christ Jesus, Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When we think of that title, ambassador, What is it? What is it that an ambassador does? And what is he or she? Well, they are a delegate of a country, of a foreign country. Therefore, who they are and what they do fully represents the place from which they come and the leader of that place. They in themselves have no authority. They have no message of their own. The only authority and message that they have comes from the place from which they come. But with that title... They have all the weight and authority of the one that they represent. And therefore, if the country that they are sent to honors them, so they honor the one who sent them. Yet if they dishonor or reject them, the ambassador, they dishonor or reject the one who sent them. And so we see so easily the parallels to gospel ministers. We represent a different country a heavenly one, and we represent the king of that country, none other than the Lord of lords and king of kings. We in ourselves are nothing. We are mere servants and the lowliest of all. But inasmuch as we come, we come bearing his authority and therefore his royalty and the nobility of the one in which we represent And therefore, we can say that there is a sense of royalty and nobility 
to the calling of one that is called to the gospel. And that is why I say there is no greater calling that can be placed on a man than the call to gospel ministry. It's not to diminish or lessen any other calling for all when done unto the Lord is pleasing to our Lord and can be tremendously useful and impactful for the kingdom of God. But there is indeed a distinct calling, a unique privilege to be called to gospel ministry, to bear the title of pastor or shepherd, to come as a messenger, an ambassador, a representative of the king. And therefore, there is a weightiness, no doubt, to the office, a seriousness that should be taken. Indeed, this night is a very solemn task, a very solemn calling as we call a brother unto this gospel ministry. I once remember hearing Ronald Reagan say that he never took off his jacket while in the Oval Office because he knew that within that office he was functioning as the President of the United States of America. And some might have thought that of strange habits or even perhaps superstitious, but he went on to say, you see, it's possible to take the office seriously without taking yourself too seriously. Indeed, that is the attitude that is required of the minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. We do not take ourselves seriously, but we do take the task and the calling and the office very serious. And so what does such a task look like? What is that calling supposed to entail? Well, the Apostle Paul lays it out for his protege, Timothy, and what we should give ourselves to within that task of pastoral ministry. And so I have four points tonight from this First Timothy 4, four aspects that Paul calls Timothy to, and indeed any minister of the gospel should give themselves to, and that is a godly life, a biblical ministry, a divine calling, and a consistent fervency. And I want to remind all that this letter, this epistle that was written to Timothy was, yes, written specifically for Timothy, but it was given to the church. And therefore, we can use this book in a similar way. What is said tonight is somewhat specific to the pastor himself, but no doubt there is general application to all Christians, to all of you, both in your own life as well, well as hopefully a model for your pastors and your respected churches. And so, This letter lays out for us not only a calling for Timothy, but a calling for all that would take this calling by the Lord's grace and through his mercy. First, there is the aspect of a godly life. You see that in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Paul, as he begins, begins with the man himself, not duty, but being, what type of man he ought to be. And what he says is that he ought to be exemplary, be an example, be a model. In what? Well, in godliness and holiness and the entirety of his whole being. 
in his words and speech, in his conduct, in his outward behavior, in his love and affection for others, in his faith and trust towards God, and in his purity and holiness. Notice Paul starts with the externals and moves towards the internals, to the heart and the soul. And I think that is purposeful, isn't it? Because what is it that is most going to be judged by those within the church and even those on the outside? You're going to be judged on that which is externally visible. Your words, your actions, your service. That which others can see and that which they can hear. But where do all of those come from? No doubt they come from the heart and they come from the mind. That which cannot be seen by others, but can only be seen by God himself. We know that the heart and the mind are the very root of who we are. Jesus taught exactly this when he says that the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks, and so he acts. No doubt we have a wonderful model of this in King David from the Old Testament. King David indeed was a a great king, a great leader, There was many things that you could point to externally of all the wonderful things that he was able to do for God and for the people of Israel, but the thing that distinguishes David is not his external service, was it? But that he was known as a man after God's own heart. The heart affects all the rest. And that is why we must reject this cultural idea that whatever happens in private is something that is private. Again, that does not work out well. Even that one major sin of King David, which we would all say was done in private, no doubt very much affected his public life and his public service to God and to the nation of Israel. And so too, whatever happens in private will affect one's life in public, either for good or for ill. And that is why I think you can read Paul's list here in reverse order, that if you give yourself to purity, which is the characteristic that he ends with in verse 12, that if you begin there, that will indeed impact your faith and your love and your conduct and your speech. Personal holiness is so very crucial. Robert Murray McShane famously said, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. My people don't most need amazing preaching. They don't need wonderful leadership skills or even acts of service. He says, my greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. And I know most have and do scoff at such a statement and think, Meshane, are you trying to elevate yourself? Are you trying to be holier than that? Well, we know for the rest of Meshane's life that he was not. In fact, he also has a very famous quote that says, for every look at self, take 10 looks at Christ. And so he was not a man that was looking just purely at himself. So this is not self-engrandizement or works righteousness. But I think what McShane would say is that my Savior deserves nothing less 
and therefore my people deserve nothing less. If I am to represent the Lord, if I am to be his ambassador, then my greatest need is to see the peer representative of Christ, that they would see before themselves an example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, do all ministers of the gospel fall short of this? Absolutely. Every single day. And if you doubt that, just ask any one of our family members and they will let you know that we fall far, far short of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that we should not pursue and have a holy pursuit. There's somewhat a skeptical saying that says the last true Christian died on the cross. And whereas I would say that the last perfect Christian did die on the cross, that does not mean that people should not see Christ in Christians, and specifically us. They should know something, I would say. They should know many things of their Savior through the life of their pastor. But even as I say that, in our day and age, that is sadly not the case. As many of you know, I work as a volunteer police chaplain. And I'll never forget what the major of the police departments said at our chaplain orientation. He said, do not think that these police officers will be too impressed that you're a pastor. He said, most of these police officers have arrested pastors. So in other words, the title by itself carries little weight. And that is sad yet true commentary of the state of the church and ministers specifically. And therefore, our culture does not hold the office of pastor in high regard as they perhaps once did. That is both because of the secularization of our culture, but also because many of pastors have fallen into scandalous sins, so much so that we are not even surprised by it anymore, are we? In fact, we've become so desensitized by it. But yet, this ought not be. And how the evil one uses this sin and shame to bring shame upon the name of Christ and upon the name of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week at a neighborhood gathering, as I was meeting a neighbor that lives nearby, he found out that I was a, a pastor and Therefore, I asked him if he was a part of a church, and he told me that he was one time, long, long ago, but not anymore, and then went on to give the reason why he does not participate in church. He said that it's, well, run by crooks and full of hypocrites, but then went on to say, but not all of them, not all of them, of course. He had to say that with me being a pastor there. And then he said, you know, just like old Jimmy Swaggart. And in my mind, I thought, well, dude, I can think of about 20 more recent and far more scandalous pastors that you could have given an analogy about and for. But the sad thing was that he was still holding on to something from, what, the 70s or 80s as an excuse for his unbelief. And all I have to say is, heaven forbid, that we would be a reason that anyone would use for their unbelief. Rather, what Paul would say to us is that we must be an example. In fact, Paul says, let no one despise your youth or your youthfulness, 
Now, most believe that Timothy was in his 30s or 40s at this time, which we don't think is being young or youthful. But what I think he is saying there is that even though you may not have reached the elder stage in your age, be elderly in your godliness and maturity and conduct. Well, second, he calls Timothy to a biblical ministry. Paul moves from the man to the ministry, and we must put it in that order. And he says in verse 13, until I come, devote yourself to these things. Now that word, devote yourself, can mean to give attention to, focus upon. The word in Greek is proseke. And I think if we were transported to first century Greek culture, we perhaps would have heard parents saying that to their children quite often, proseke, 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 especially to their teenagers, which means focus, pay attention. And that is what Paul is telling Timothy to do. But in this case, he's telling Timothy to focus, be devoted upon several things. And he lists those for us to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. In other words, you can say that Paul tells Timothy, give yourself to the reading, the preaching, and the teaching of God's word. And I imagine as Timothy was reading this letter that was written to him, he probably completed the statements before he even read it. Because I imagine that he heard that so often from the Apostle Paul that he knew what Paul was going to say even before he said it. So when Paul said, remember to give yourself, devote yourself to these things, I'm sure Timothy knew exactly what it was that Paul was going to say. It's kind of like when you were a child and you were about to go to your friend's house and your mom would say to you, right when you're about ready to leave the door, now don't forget. And even you would say, I know, I know. Mind my manners and say please and thank you. Why? Because you heard it so often. And Timothy was no doubt doing the same. Reading, preaching, teaching, reading, preaching, teaching, reading, preaching, teaching. That is the public ministry of the pastor. And many could try to argue for other things, and no doubt there are other aspects to the pastoral ministry that we must give ourselves to, but nothing that is to be more central than the reading and preaching and teaching of God's word. We're not to be CEOs. We're not to be office managers. We're not to be personnel directors. We're not even to be recruiters of volunteers. No, we're to be readers and preachers and teachers. I was recently having a conversation with my friend, and I was reminded that my father who is also a pastor, did not have an office in the church. No, he had a study. That's what it was called, the study. And that's what everybody called it, not only himself, but everyone in the church. And I don't think that was unique to him. I generally think that was true of pastors a a generation ago. Their space in the church was called a study. Why? Because that was their primary task to be students, to be 
studiers of God's word so as to publicly read and preach and teach the word. I think it demonstrates in the etymology the change of focus in the church these days and the role of the pastor. And I do not think for the better. So the task is upon us as pastors, even upon you as members of the church, to say we want men to be men of the word. We want to be a people and a congregation that that knows the word, that hears the word, that studies the word. You remember that famous passage in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8 where the people of Israel ask Nehemiah and Ezra to to bring the book. And that is a a wonderful phrase. We should have the congregation say, we want to hear from the book. We want to hear the book of the law, the, the book of Holy Scripture. And Steve Lawson, as many of you know, has a a great sermon on that passage. And only as Steve Lawson can do and sound with his nasally voice, say, bring us the book. We want to hear less about you, pastor, and we want to hear more about the book. And that is so true, isn't it? That we do not want to hear more about what is going on in the world. We hear enough about what is going on in the world. We do not want to hear more stories and more analogies and more jokes. We want to hear the book. We want to hear Holy Scripture. We want to know God's Word every single Sunday. We should leave and say, I know my God. I know my Christ. I know the Gospel. And I know the Word of God better as a result of my time at church because God's Word has been exposited and explained and applied because that is what truly works. In fact, the Spirit promises that that is what is going to work, that the Word will never return void. And so if we want an effective ministry in our churches, we must read, we must preach, and we must teach. And we must do it again and again and again because we can never know it enough. We can never exhaust its riches The wisdom and riches of God's word is as rich as God is himself. And so in 2 Timothy, Paul says something very similar. In fact, he says the same thing. And I imagine, again, at this point, Timothy is probably rolling his eyes saying, I know, Paul, I know what you're going to say. But Paul says it even more seriously in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, Timothy, I charge you. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Again, preach and teach. Why? Because it is the breathed out word of God the only sufficient means that we have to, to teach and rebuke and to correct and train in righteousness and godliness. Why? Because we have that wonderful promise that it is the only means by which men and women will be made complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. We should not be satisfied with anything less than a biblical ministry that is full of the Bible. And so the people of Smyrna Perez hear this 
often that we want to be a church that reads, teaches, preaches, prays, and sings, and lives the Holy Scriptures. That is our philosophy of ministry. Well, third, Paul goes on to give the divine calling. You see this in verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. All of the above things do not come easily. They might be easy to read, but they are hard to do, meaning that it is easy to get discouraged. We often don't see instant results, do we? We're working in spiritual realms, and so oftentimes we do not get to see the the fruit of our labors. So the work of ministry and ministers can be very discouraging at times. And that is why I think Paul seeks to encourage Timothy here, who we know from various passages was probably a bit by nature more passive and timid. But Paul does not encourage him with worldly wisdom, does he? He doesn't say, you can do it, Timothy. You're great. You're you're doing a great job. Keep going. Rather, he says simply, do not neglect the gifts that you have. And referring to them as gifts implies what? They are not from him, are they? They are not the work of Timothy's hands, but they are from God. And God has given them to you for a specific task, for the work of ministry, which he says was given by prophecy and the laying on of hands. That gift you have was demonstrated, and it's demonstrated by the divine calling of God. God is the one that has called you. God is the one that has set you apart. He is the one that has selected and chosen you. That is not only true in salvation, but in ministry as well. That it is not just an inward call that a man needs, but he also needs that external call. He must be proven. He must be tested. He must be tried. Meaning that the call to gospel ministry does not happen outside of the church. God always uses his church in the means to call men unto ministry. His church sees those gifts that God has given. And therefore, they say, yes, we confirm that this indeed is the work of the Lord. And then, therefore, and only then, do they lay their hands on this man. In fact, we know from the rest of Scripture, it says, do not lay your hands prematurely on a young believer, on a young convert." one that has not been able to demonstrate the the full fruitfulness of his life and of his ministry. That is something that we will see tonight. It is not something that is weird. It's not something that is strange. It's not something that is superstitious, but rather biblical as we see right here, that there is this act of laying on of hands, just like in the Old Testament with kings and priests that were anointed with oil, I guess we could use oil tonight if we wanted, but the oil is not the matter, the part that is important. The anointing and the appointing of the Lord is what is signified by that laying on of hands through the leadership of his church. And this is a a part of the keys of the kingdom. 
being given to Peter and to the apostles and thus to the church, that there is authority granted and given. And indeed, this is and ought to be a great encouragement. No doubt it was a great encouragement to Timothy. Most men that are called to the ministry remember the date of their ordination. For myself, it was June 8th, 2008. And I can say emphatically, next to my wedding anniversary and the birth of my children, there is no more significant date in my life. And no doubt, James, this will be the same for you. And this laying on of hands by Christ's church is significant and biblical, as we see here. And it is a good reminder. And you will have to be reminded of it often, especially when days are difficult and days are hard. And when days are are discouraging, as they oftentimes are in ministry, when you think, you know, I could just go do something else, something that would perhaps be a lot easier and perhaps make a whole lot more money. But you need to be reminded, no, the Lord is the one that has called me to this task. And therefore, I need to carry on with the strength and the perseverance that he would give to me and not neglect the the gifts given to me for the work of ministry. And so, therefore, we cannot or should not lay down that mantle lightly. Well, fourth and finally, we see a consistent fervency. And we see this in verses 15 and 16, where Paul ends this section with several imperatives, several commands. In fact, most of this passage has been in the imperative mood, but now he does so in in rapid fire. And there is a repeated theme. You hear it, don't you? Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch and persist in this. Continue to do these things, Timothy, that I have mentioned. Not go after new ways or novel ideas. Do not get discouraged or disheartened. In other words, carry on. Steady on. It's like that off-quoted book title, but sadly rarely read book. I don't know if it's a good book at all, but it has a great title by Eugene Peterson, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That truly is the Christian life, isn't it? That we're not called to a sprint, but rather a marathon with windy roads and steep paths. But we are not to give up. We're always to be strengthened and nourished by the Lord. And so don't look for quick fixes. Don't look for shortcuts. None of that will help. In fact, you'll only end up in the ditch or if not far off the path that God would have for you. So stay by God's grace on the straight and narrow. Steady on. And he even says, always making progress. In fact, he says, so that all may see your progress. And I think that is an important task because we all know of pastors and theologians towards the end of their career. We hear them preaching the the same sermons or using the same analogies again and again and again. Now, some of them are, are really good. It's kind of like when your, your grandpa tells you the same stories again and again. You don't mind 
When he begins with, did I ever tell you? And you say, yes, Grandpa, only about a thousand times. But that's okay, go ahead. We'll hear it again. But that shouldn't be the case. There should be progress. There should be an increasing aspect of our ministry. Why? Because we, we never arrive. We never achieve or reach the end. That we are finite men that are always lost in the awe and majesty of the infinite God. And so, therefore, carry on. Slug along, if need be. I preached a sermon this morning called The Plotting Nature of Life and Ministry. And that is what we are called to. We are plotters. We're not super achievers. Oftentimes, the Christian life will not be made by leaps and bounds, but rather plotting on. It's much like the table, the fable of the tortoise and the hare. That we as Christians are the tortoise, aren't we? Whereas the world is the, the hare. But in the end, the tortoise wins the race, does he not? And achieves the prize. And so the Lord Jesus Christ will preserve us to the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. And so Paul says to Timothy, practice, immerse, keep yourself, persist in these things. So as to keep a fervent heart for the Lord and for ministry. That very famous proverb, Proverbs 4.23, that says, Keep your hearts with all vigilance for from it flows the spring of life. I like the NIV's version of it. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Indeed, we do not want to be noisy gongs or clanging cymbals. Rather, we want to keep a heart fervent of love for Christ and for his church to offer ourselves again and again as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is our spiritual and acceptable worship. And the Lord deserves and will not accept anything else. Well, as we conclude then, why do we do all of these things? Why would we give ourselves to a godly life and to a public ministry and to a divine calling and to this aspect of keeping a consistent fervency? Well, if you back up in chapter 4, you read this in verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That is the key verse, isn't it? That we, at the end of the day, are just mere servants, unworthy servants at that, only having done our duty. But when it is all said and done, We will not be judged on the basis of all that we have accomplished or how many souls we have saved or how big of a church we pastor. None of that will matter in comparison to hear those wonderful words that we all long to hear, minister and member alike, to hear from our Savior, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into your master's joy. Well, until those glorious words would be spoken and heard, let us remain faithful and loyal as good servants of Jesus Christ. Amen. Join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this encouraging, 
and yet convicting passage that lays before us this call to the ministry and what a minister should look like and how he should act. And Lord, even as we put it for us, we know that we fall far, far short way too often and we ask for for your forgiveness. But yet, Lord, we pray that you would have us to encourage one another and continue to strive forward to all of these things so that we would be indeed good servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would hear the praise of our master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy. And Lord, we don't want that joy just one day. Yes, we want it then, but we want it even now. And so would you encourage us in the ministry? Would you encourage us in our churches, O Lord? Would you encourage us in the way that you have called us and the task that you've given to us? And Lord, would we be able to see some of the the fruit of our labors? Would we see those that turn from death unto life? Would we see those that are continuing to strive forward, one with another, iron sharpening iron, O Lord? Lord, as our day and age gets darker, Lord, would we shine as lights and would we give you glory and praise in all the things that you have called us to. We pray, pray it all in Christ.